Well, welcome. I'm Nathan. For those of you who uh, don't know me, and it's uh, my privilege uh, today to share with you from the uh, book of Philippians. Now, this is a new start for us. For over the next 12 weeks as a church, we're going to be journeying through this book. And it's, uh, it's a letter written by Paul to a place called Philippi. And there are two things that we as a pastoral team and an eldership team would really love to encourage you to do uh, during this next 12 weeks. If you're not involved in a small group, get involved in a small group because we're going to be going through the study guide. So, an 11-week study guide. Now, for, for those who might find it difficult to get involved in a small group, what we've decided to do is on a Wednesday evening here at the church at 7.30, we will run a group for those who aren't currently in a group. We'd love to see you. You can um, pick up a book. They're down here by the Bibles. Um, you pick up it at the end of the service. And uh, let's get involved. Let's get involved in learning together and encouraging one another together because this letter is a wonderful, wonderful encouragement. Secondly, and uh, Shubs is going to help hand these around, you, we're going to give you a bookmark. We've done this before. So what are you going to do with this bookmark, folks? You're going to put it in your Bible, right? And you'll see on the, on, the, on the front of the bookmark, you'll see, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if you turn the old bookmark over, you'll see a challenge. We're asking you to read through the book of Philippians in one sitting 20 times. So that's not one time, it's 20 times, all right? And it's the four chapters all at once. It will take you about 15 minutes. It's not a, not, a, not a hugely onerous thing to do. But I tell you what, you'll be blessed by it. You'll be incredibly blessed by it. This is your Philippians challenge. Read the book 20 times. And the other thing we'd love you to do, we'd love you to write it out. You can choose whatever version you would. Uh, we're going to be predominantly preaching from the ESV version throughout the series. But uh, write out the book. Grab a, grab a pad. Because I'll tell you what, I've been doing this for a number of years now. And as I write out God's word, I see it in a new light. Because I start to think through the words, start thinking through the phrases. And it goes from my hand to my head and hopefully to my heart to change my behaviour. So that's your challenge. So what are you all going to do this week? You're going to read Philippians. How many times are you going to read it this week? Once. No, come on. You've got to go at least twice this week. Get yourselves ahead. We've got 11 weeks. You're going to have to do it two times a week, folks. All right? Two times a week. Hey, you might even be able to do it twice in a day. And I want, I, want to, I want someone to come and tell me at the end of Philippians, I read it a hundred times. That would be wonderful. But we're going to set the bar at 20. All right. So what are the two things? Get involved in a small group so we can study God's word together and encourage one another. Start reading and writing out Philippians. Today is going to serve as a, a very much a general introduction to the letter. We're going to look at you know, why was this letter written? Um, where was the place of writing? Who were the key characters? What are the key characteristics of the church at Philippi? We're going to look at those types of things and we're going to settle on what we think the key themes are. 
Now, a lot of these things will be repeated throughout the 11 weeks, but it's always good to build a foundation. It's always good to have an overview. Some may ask, well, you know, why do we need to do this overview? Or what real importance is that when it comes to reading and studying God's Word? I'd like to answer that question in a, in a couple of ways. Firstly, here at Canterbury Gardens, we take God's Word seriously. As a leadership, as a pastoral team, we believe it's our responsibility to proclaim to you the truth of God's Word through the process of expository preaching. So when we talk about expository preaching, it's, it's our goal to take chapters and verses, paragraphs and phrases and see what God is revealing through his word to us. You see, this book was written, it's an ancient book. It was written over 2,000 years ago, the New Testament was, and the Old Testament up to 3,500 years ago. So as a preacher and teacher of God's word, it's our desire to actually bridge the gap. Bridge the gap from when the the Word of God is written to 2017. And background information will help us with that. As we work through this book together, if we have some understanding of the, of the context of why Paul originally wrote to this church, what pressures they were facing as a church, what was going through the minds of the original audience... then this will help in us determining the interpretation of Scripture. It will help us to determine the meaning of the text before us. You see, when we we talk about the Bible, it's a study of God. It's a study of theology. That's what all theology means. You are studying God. You're studying His revealed Word through the person and work of Christ. But you know what? It's not an academic exercise. It's not something that sits in the head because theology, our understanding of God, must, must result in action. It must shape us through His Spirit. It must refine us. It must conform us to the image of Christ. That must be your goal in studying God's Word to be transformed by it. To live as Christ. To die as gain. I want to read a quote to you. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to read a quote. And this is a quote by a a man that has impacted my ministry and uh, my love for God's word. It's a quote by a fellow by the name of Art Azurdia. He lives in Portland, Oregon, and he is uh, uh, the president of a seminary there called Western Theological Seminary. He's written many good books, and he's a wonderful preacher of God's word. But I just want to read this quote to you because I think this drives at the heart of why we want to spend the next 12 weeks together studying this particular letter. This is in the context of what the Bible means to art. This book, the Bible, contains 
the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. That means they do not change. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is a traveller's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is the grand subject. Our good is design and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read God's word slowly. Read God's word frequently. Read God's word prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, health to the soul, a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life, will be opened at the judgment, and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest honour, and condemn all who trifle with its contents. Isn't that a wonderful summary of the power of God's word? So with that in our hearts, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. If you have trouble finding where Philippians is, I've always had a, a little wee, wee ditty because you've got these, these four little letters in the middle of uh, the New Testament which I always get confused, I don't know about you. Who gets confused about trying to find Philippians? So you've got four of them, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? Yeah, they're all the, sitting in the middle there. Best way of remembering that, Galatians eat potato chips. Okay, that gets your order right. Galatians eat potato chips. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay, so turn to Philippians with me. We're going to read a couple of verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul was persecuted. He was ridiculed and he was awaiting death. He was defending and, and preaching the gospel of grace until his final breath. Paul, the aged apostle, who was comforted by Timothy and his faithful friend Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus who had been sent from this church at Philippi with a gift for Paul while he was under house arrest in Rome, this aged apostle takes up his quill and writes a letter of encouragement and exhortation to the saints at Philippi. It's a short letter. It's four chapters. You'll read it a hundred times before we're finished. But it's a letter that's different to a lot of other of Paul's letters. It's stylistically very different. 
So you can't divide this letter into distinct theological units. Like if you look at the book of Ephesians, you have theology for two chapters and then you, for three chapters, and then you have the practical outflowing of that for the next three. Philippians is not like that. Philippians is written by a historical person, Paul, who's in a, or under, Roman guard, house arrest in Rome, waiting to see Nero. It's written somewhere around, we think, 60 to 62 AD, approximately 12 years after the first time Paul touches base with this particular group of people. And as you sort of read, and as, as I encourage you to do, as you continue to soak in God's word through the reading of his word, you will find one thing is really clear as you read this letter. And I think it's Paul's deep love and affection for this church. Paul's deep love and affection for this church. Look down in chapter 1 of Philippians and we read in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Verse 7 and 8, here you have these these terms that, that Paul just pours out, I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This, this verb that's used here is the most, most expressive term available in the language to indicate this source of human emotion. It's actually quite staggering when I was doing a little bit of research on this. The actual word is more akin to someone's internal entrails. Now, that may sound, sound kind of shocking. It is kind of shocking. But in the context that Paul uses here, he's saying, with my total inner being, with my total inside, I'm, I'm yearning for you with the affection of who? The affection of Christ. It's because what Christ has done inside my life and in my heart that I, I want to show and this affection for you. His grace that has been poured out to me is the same grace that has been poured out to you as saints. This yearning we may express in terms um, like, I love you with my whole heart. Has anyone here ever said those terms? You know? I'm sure Shabu, as he looks at Beck, just looks at her and says, I just love you with my whole heart. Yes. Uh, Beck, are you here? Would you like to comment? <laughs> but that's the deep yearning and, and affection that is shown when you use those sorts of terms. And this is what Paul is showing here, this deep affection. He goes on, if you turn over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. And he continues the theme. He says, Therefore, my beloved, even that term, my beloved, as you have obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it's the wrong verse. 
4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You can see this affection. In that verse, 4, verse 1, this um, I love and long for. The word long for is a is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it has this idea of just longing and desiring and earnestly displaying this emotion. You see, that's another unique thing about this letter. You'll find as you read through this letter that um, there are 40-odd words in this letter that are uncommon anywhere else in the New Testament. Four of them are names. 36 of them are particularly aligned for this particular letter. So we'll have a bit of fun with that as we go through uh, looking at those particular words. So Paul proclaims this deep love and affection not just to the Philippians, he also does it to others. If you want to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you'll see this testimony he gives the Corinthian church about the churches of Macedonia. And it's the same affection and love which is shown. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overcome in a wealth of generosity on their part. So he commends these churches of Macedonia, which Philippians is one of them, Philippi is one of them, as um, just incredibly generous. Their extreme poverty, they've overflowed in a wealth of generosity. He shows this deep love and affection for the way they partner and minister for the gospel. So then, as we read, we we read right at the start, we've got these verses, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So what is this relationship? We see it's a deep relationship of love, but when did this relationship start? How did this relationship start? How are Paul and Timothy involved in this relationship? A little bit of context helps here. You see, at the end of Acts, you, you read um, Paul starts moving from Jerusalem through to Rome to, be, uh, to have an audience with Nero. And in chapter 1 here, we see that he's actually under imperial guard in verse 13. So he's in this context, so, and Timothy is with him. So this is where he is writing. This is their situation. And Epaphroditus is another key figure, which you'll start reading about in chapter 2. And Epaphroditus has been sent by this church to Timothy and to Paul to pass on a gift. You see, this is an interesting situation. When you're incarcerated in these times, you had to pay for everything. The prisoner had to pay for everything. 
So he was under house arrest in Rome. He was probably in an apartment of some sort. And, and there's an expense to that for the prisoner. Not for the Roman government, but for the prisoner. So the Philippian church heard about this and they sent Epaphroditus with a large gift to help with this incarceration and the cost thereof. To help pay for the food and the accommodation. So that's the sort of historical setting of when he wrote this and we're talking about AD 62. But it still doesn't answer the question is when did Paul first come in contact with this church? So we'll be back to Acts chapter 16. See, Acts chapter 16 is the start of Paul's second missionary journey. And if you start reading from verse 11 onwards, you will see that um, Paul set sail from Taurus. He makes a direct voyage to Somathras and then the following day to Nepalus. If you see that map, and I'm sorry it's not larger than it should be, but you see the green arrow? That's Philippi. About 17 kilometres below that is Nepalus, the port. And that's where um, Paul set sail and came to. And from there, he walked up to Philippi. And Philippi in, in Acts 16 verse 12 is described in this way. Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. This is a pretty unique sort of label for this city. See, Paul had been called to preach into Macedonia. He wanted to go elsewhere, but the Spirit of God grabbed Paul and says, No, we want you to go over to Macedonia. We want the gospel to be spread into this region of Europe. This is modern-day Greece. Okay? Modern-day Greece, we're talking here. And he's called to preach there. And Philippi is described as a leading city in the district of Macedonia. Uh, Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, notes that Philippi, this terminology as a leading city was there based more on the context of um, civic pride within the Greco-Roman antiquity because Macedonia was broken up into four regions and this is just one of the regions but the actual capital city was Thessalonica which is just down the road which is another place that Paul visited so when Luke describes this as a leading city it's a leading city because one it's a Roman colony and two because of its status amongst other cities not because of its uh, capital nature It's estimated that during Paul's time when he first went here, it was a city of the size of somewhere around between twenty-five and 50,000 people. So it's a reasonable sized city. So what's the history behind this city? How did the city become to be known as a city? And what has gone on there? Because it's kind of a significant thing. And this is significant when we look at this context for helping us understand this letter as we dive into it. This is why we're going through some of these things. So Philippi, city of Macedonia, uh, northeastern Greece, 17 kilometres or 10 miles inland from the Aegean Sea and northwest of Nepalus. 
This city here was first occupied in the 6th century uh, by settlers from Theos who named the thing Kinides. And they named it this way because evidently there's a lot of freshwater springs in and around the city. And that word means, guess what? Freshwater springs. Okay. Naming is easy, isn't it? When you have a natural resource like that, you say, okay, we'll call this Freshwater Springs. So that was the original name given in, in the 6th century BC. There's another significant thing about this city which uh, drew people to, to it. There was gold in them hills. The city was sitting in a valley, a very fertile valley, a, a beautiful place of agriculture, but there was gold in the hills. And so the city grew large as the gold rush began. And uh, it was a key thing. There were evidently enormous deposits of gold. That's why some, some uh, commentators have described it. So um, the site was renamed Philippi in about 358 BC. And it was renamed this because of... Uh, Philip II. Now, who, who knows who Philip II is? Please, you're all up on your Roman geography. And it's, just, it's actually before that, it's Greek. Philip II was Alexander the Great's father. Okay, so Alexander the Great's father was called Philip II. And he had a bit of a uh, high opinion of himself, so he thought, I want to name a city after myself. So he, he named the city after himself. Philippi. And you can imagine also uh, being of this elk, what did he do with the gold? It became tax for Philip II. So he, uh, he routed the area and, and became very wealthy because of what happened there. Philippi was brought under Roman rule in uh, 168. And it's uh, interesting to note that um, when it was under Roman rule, some significant things happened. The famous Roman roads, you talk about every road leads to Rome. You heard that saying? Well, this is particularly important for Philippi because the road went right through the middle of it to Rome. Uh, the road was called the Via Egonita, and it runs right through. And there is an archaeological dig of the site right today. It's, uh, it's not a five-lane highway. It didn't need to be. But this, ro this road was the, the main arterial route from Rome through to the east. And it whacked through Philippi. So, what was the religion of this city? The original foundings... Uh, Settlers worshipped three gods. Libopater, who was the god of the grape harvest, so they worshipped a god who they thought would yield great grapes. Uh, there was a Thakian rider, and this particular god was associated with hunting and represented the native hunter cult. 
and the, the, the guy was always depicted as a horse. Okay, so Faki and Ryder was always a horse. And then there was uh, Bendis. Now, Bendis was the equivalent of Diana and Artemis when you talk about some Roman and Greek mythology, Diana and Artemis. So uh, Bendis was a fertility god and was worshipped, would involve orgastic-type practices. Along with those three primary uh, gods, there was also when Rome started taking over the place and the, the Greeks were there for a while, you had different cults just spring up. It was a plethora of religion. Absolute plethora of religion. And uh, by New Testament times, the predominant religion was the worship of the emperor because it was a Roman colony. And that's significant as we start reading through this letter. It is incredibly significant why inside that culture does Paul address these people in this church in this way. I would think Philippi and its culture and its religion is similar to Melbourne in Victoria. Sure, we don't go worshipping horses and we don't go... um, worshipping the God of the great harvest but we have a plethora of religious and religiosity in this city it may be wrapped in humanism it may be just worshipping self above all so there are many similarities This site was also the site of the most significant military battles in the Roman history. I'll give you a little bit of Roman history here. Wow, that's interesting, isn't it? I have no idea what that is. Okay, so a bit of Roman history. Um, The battle here happened in 42 BC between Mark Anthony and Octavian. Octavian was later known as Augustus or Caesar Augustus of New Testament fame. And this is where he conquered Julius, uh, the, assassinate, the assassinators of Julius Caesar, uh, Cassius and Brutus. And in some ways, the battle that happened here really uh, shaped the, the Roman world. And at the conclusion by 31 BC, Augustus turned Philippi into that Roman colony. And then he gave it a name which I'm not going to pronounce Uh, because it's a tricky name at best. Uh, But he turned it into a Roman colony and called it that name. You can read it for yourselves. Um, And um, as part of the process, he planted veterans from the war into the colony, right? So he said, you've been so... so, uh, Loyal to me through this war. Here, have a slice of Philippi. So Philippi, by the time Paul gets there and the time of the New Testament is uh, a Roman colony of the highest order. They reckon it's the most Roman place outside Rome. Even the, the geography and the architecture reflected Rome. And these uh, 
Patriots receive special privileges and as only a Roman colonist could. They received exemption from taxes and the right to own market and property, which was pretty significant. And the language was Latin. It was one of the most Latin places outside Rome, as opposed to Greek. And that's a little bit of the history pre when Paul gets there. As we said, um, Paul gets this vision, go over to Macedonia, go and, go and uh, proclaim the gospel of Christ in that place. And we, we pick up the story in Acts 16, and he ends up at Philippi, as we discussed, a, a leading district, a Roman colony. And what he does is, quite significant. Everywhere else until this point in time in Paul's life, when he goes into a new area, what does he do? He goes into a synagogue on the Sabbath. He goes into a synagogue and he proclaims Christ through the Old Testament to the synagogue. But what does he do in Philippi? Let's read it in uh, Acts 16. And on the Sabbath day, verse 13, he went outside the gate to the riverside where he supposed there was a place of prayer. And he sat down and spoke to the woman who came together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So you see, this is a quite significant that Paul changes his strategy and he has no synagogue to go to. So that means a couple of things. There were hardly any Jews in, in Philippi. Because to form a synagogue, you required 10 males, evidently. Okay. You required 10 males to form a synagogue. And that's not a huge part of the population when you consider this is somewhere between 25 and 50,000 people. So this particular church is as Gentile church as you can get. The forming of this church. And we see this, this marvellous calling by God to Lydia, a seller of purple. She was in this city, obviously making a very good living because to be a seller of purple was quite a fine art and craft. But she was converted. She moved from being a fabric seller to being a follower of Christ and a leading member in the formation of this church. So from being a fabric seller to a follower of Christ, what a remarkable transformation. Then we see in the, the balance of Acts 16 here, um, as Paul is interacting in and around the city, he, he upsets some of the local gentry. He upsets them because they have a slave girl. And, and this slave girl yells out as Paul runs by, crying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You see, she was demon-possessed. Tells us she had a spirit of divination, but the, the, the demon knew who, who, uh, who Paul was worshipping. 
who Paul was proclaiming. And Paul got a little bit sick of this and he decided to cast this demon out and this upset her owners because she was a slave girl. And so they seized Paul and Silas. Silas is with him, Luke is with him. These three are together on this journey and they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them in the marketplace before the rulers and before the magistrates. You see, um, magistrates were kind of an important part of the city's makeup for a Roman colony. They, they possessed special powers. Each magistrate was allowed two lictors. Now, does anyone know what a lictor is? No, I didn't either. And I, I think I wouldn't mind a lictor, actually. I think this wouldn't be a bad thing. <laughs> no, I do. I think it would be a really bad thing. A lictor would carry a bundle of sticks and rods. So a lictor was a person. They'd work for the magistrate. They'd have in their bag like a, a set of golf clubs. Okay? Put it that way. They'd have it on their shoulders like a bag with, say, maybe a set of golf clubs in there, but they were rods. And, under, and these, um, these rods symbolise the magistrate's authority. So I imagine you have the magistrate and you, then you have two lictors, one on each side. Everywhere the magistrate went, the lictor would follow. And he would be displaying these bag of rods. It's a kind of interesting sort of picture, really. But, you know, at the, at the magistrate's command, these guys could beat anybody they liked. Okay? So it's a bit like the old school, you know, private school in Caning, um, where the prefects could actually choose any sort of person they liked, and if they didn't like the way they smiled, they could say, bend over and give them six of the best. It's a little bit like that. And uh, these magistrates also had the authority equal to that of a military tribunal but they could only use that right in a time of war. So when Paul and Silas are dragged before them, they receive a beating, as we see. Uh, the, the issue that has been raised by those inside this Roman colony is these people are practicing stuff that we just don't agree with. They're proclaiming Christ. And they receive this beating. They end up in this jail. This is the prison that they actually ended up in. This is the archaeological dig of Philippi. And Paul and Silas ended up deep in this dungeon. And we know what happened, don't they? They were sitting there worshipping and praising God. An earthquake happened and the, the chains and fetters were thrown off them. And the Philippian jailer says... I can't let this happen. I'm going to have to fall on my sword. And they cry out, don't fall on your sword. We are here. We are alive. We have not moved. And what happens? The Philippian jailer comes to faith in Christ. The Philippian jailer is converted. What a wonderful, wonderful show of God's grace. So that, folks, is the start of the Philippian church. 
So what are some of the characteristics of this uh, church? I'm a little bit behind in my slides. I'm sorry about this. Next one, I think. It's a Gentile church. Completely Gentile church. It was founded by Paul, Timothy and Silas and Luke. The first converts are, uh, are Gentiles. Founding members, we have, we have uh, some significant women. We have Lydia. We, we don't really know whether the slave girl was saved. We think she was from this uh, experience. Later in the letter, you'll see that there's Judah and Sakaia. We know this church was very generous, as we read previously. It contributed many funds to, Rome, uh, to Paul's ministry and to his missionary endeavor. We know that it faced opposition and suffering. And a large part of this letter, as we dive into it, we'll see these two things in tension. To be a follower of Christ, to live as Christ, to die as gain, to live as Christ is to suffer for Christ. And that's challenging. And we also know that there was some uh, disunity and internal unrest within the church. So what are some of the, the key theological things we hope to discover as we go through this letter together? I think you're going to see Paul's theology of life. To live as Christ, to die as gain. It's a pretty cut statement, isn't it? Could you and I say that? That's the challenge. Do I totally live under the lordship of Christ as a follower of him? We'll see some Christology in here. We've got the famous part of Philippians 2 where it says, Have this mind in you, that of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on a cross. You've got Christ proclaimed and his example of humility. You've got unity through humility as a theme. Whenever you ask somebody about Philippians, they'll they'll always say it's it's a letter of joy. So... You've got rejoicing amid suffering as a theme. You've got standing firm and persevering in your faith until Christ returns. It starts with that. But I think all these are probably sub-themes. So I think the major theme is sanctification. Growing in Christ. This uh, this letter, Paul commands them to behave in a manner worthy of the gospel. Chapter one, verse twenty-seven. He says, "Work out your salvation in obedience to Christ." Verse two, verse twelve. He says, "Become blameless in this endeavor." 
His prayer right at the start, and I love this prayer. Look at it with me at um, chapter 1, verse 9. And my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. He's praying, just don't love one another, have knowledge and discernment with your love so that you may be able to. The result of, of having discernment and knowledge and love is that you will approve what is excellent, pure and blameless. Paul wants them to grow in their sanctification. He wants this to grow so that they will, this will result in unity and selfless humility, just as the example of Christ is. He wants them to be conformed to Christ. And see, as we've un- unpacked this, this culture, this Roman colony of the church, you, you see, it's Paul's heart. He says, I know what your political and religious loyalties could be because of your situation. But I want to remind you to maintain the gospel at the centre. I want to tell you there in Philippi to see yourselves first as Christians and second as Roman citizens. As we read this, I hope we're confronted with that. That Christ wants to see us first as Christians and then citizens of Australia or a higher citizenship, New Zealand. But, you know, he wants to, to see us as first citizens of the King. He calls them saints right at the start to all the saints in Christ Jesus. He wants to pass on to these saints. He wants to pass on an ongoing encouragement with deep affection and love. Because the position of sainthood is amazing because the only reason you're a saint and I'm a saint is because of Christ. See, every one of us is in a, is an ongoing process of becoming more like Christ. An ongoing process of becoming sanctified. This process can only be empowered by the Spirit of God within us. He's there to convict, refine, and lead us in a life of godliness. He's continually saying, think and consider your growth in holiness. Stand firm, be of one mind, be of one spirit, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. For to me to live is Christ. And that's the example he's passing on. So over the next 12 weeks, as we study this book, my challenge is that we stand firm, that we're of one mind, one spirit, through the power and the provision of the Holy Spirit to grow in Christ together. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. I invite you to stand.